Is West Coast college football important to the rest of college football? And what about the ecosystem in general with college athletics? We asked SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey those questions and a whole bunch more. I'm John Canzano. Welcome to another episode of Canzano and Wilner, the podcast. What's better than one, John? Here's Johnny. Hmm, nobody really knows. That's why we put two of them together. This is Canzano and Wilner, a.k.a. John and John. Welcome to another episode of Canzano and Wilner, the podcast. I am John Wilner, Bay Area News Group, Pac12Hotline.com. We have got a huge guest today, Greg Sankey, commissioner of the SEC, man, Sports Illustrated recently called the most powerful person in college sports. And I'm with my co-host, John Canzano. You can read me at johnconzano.com. That's where you get me exclusively. Get a free subscription, get a paid subscription, whatever works for you. Uh, Greg Sankey, like, look, this is a big one. This is a big one. I've been I've been promoting this one and talking about this one. Wilner, why is it important for us to talk to Greg Sankey? You know, what Greg Sankey, his influence is obviously enormous in college football. But I think that a, a point that, that folks don't get is how everything is interconnected, right? And what, what the SEC is doing and the way it's making policy and the decisions it makes for its football programs – and for the you know the future of it, its conference impacts everything else, and certainly impacts the Pac-12. It impacts football and college sports on the West Coast. So, what he thinks and his his view of the landscape and the ecosystem, you know, ha- resonates everywhere. I think too. Part of it for me is, look, we've we've talked about the Pac-12 a lot. We have uh, talked about the Big Ten a lot because of you know the realignment with USC and UCLA. We've talked about the Big 12 and Brent Yormark, but this is a chance for us to talk to kind of the SE, which is kind of sitting on the side, outside in, looking over at the Pac-12 and the chaos that has happened since June 30th or whatever, you know, that happened. So I would love to get his perspective on, A, the the health of college athletics. What's it supposed to be? What's it going to look like? Who is this guy who's running the SEC? But also his vantage point, I think, is valuable in the same way that, like, you know, if you're running a business, you want uh, you, you need to hire a consultant who looks at you and, and kind of evaluates you because you're too close to it. So I want to get his perspective from SEC territory of what he sees happening on the western part of the United States. And frankly, Wilner, in college football, the western part of the United States has not factored, has not mattered. Is that important to Greg Sankey in the SEC? Yeah, and the other interesting piece is that unlike the commissioners, the current commissioners of the Big 12, Big 10, and Pac-12, he is a lifer in college sports, really. So he's he has a different perspective on this whole you know evolution that's that's transforming the conferences and the way the NCAA works and the way the college football postseason works. You know he's he's got you know old school in some ways because he's he's been in college sports for decades. But yeah, and it's true that, you know, you look at Brett Yormark, uh, where his background is not from, you know, he wasn't like Greg Sankey came from the Southland Conference. And Greg Sankey was a was a college athlete himself and worked in the intramural department of, of a small college and, you know, rose through the ranks. And, you know, as you mentioned, he is a college guy and a lifer. Uh, Brett Yormark um, comes from the entertainment world. George Kleofkopf, the commissioner of the Pac-12, comes from MGM uh, sports and entertainment, and and prior to that was you know in the entertainment business with streaming and Hulu and NBC Universal, and so 
and, and Warren's got the the background of the NFL and whatnot. So, you know, I think it's a very different. You know, you have a new breed of commissioner. But Greg Sankey is the old guard, and so I'm excited to talk with him. And, you know, on that note, we are welcoming in Greg Sankey. Gentlemen, how are you? Greg, you know, to be honest, the question I have been dying to ask you for a long time is how somebody runs 40 marathons and still can get out of bed in the morning. (laughs) I'm in my late 50s now, and it's probably caught up with me. Um, It was a fun adventure, you know. I did one in Santa Cruz, California, or outside Santa Cruz, the forest of the Nicene Marks, I think, is uh, was the park, the epicenter of the earthquake during the Oakland-San Francisco uh, World Series. Um, it, it was just it's just a fun adventure in, in my 40s, and uh, I, I, I don't know if I uh, will regret it when I'm 65, but it was <laughs> well, it happened. And you run basically every day, don't you? I did not run today is my confession. You know, I, okay. <laughs> I, I stopped. I did CrossFit stuff for a while, and that just kicked my backs behind, if you will. And uh, it was good while it lasted. And then during COVID, when all the gyms shut down, I needed to pivot. And I went yep. uh, about a year and a half running every, every day, literally. And now, you know, travel and work activity has altered my ability to run every day, but I either run or walk most days. When you run, do you, I listen to the radio. uh, Do you try to listen to something or do you try to think about work? Uh, Both. I I generally listen to podcasts and then there are those days when things are mounting. I just turn it off and uh, leave the phone behind. I usually will. I, I wear an Apple watch to track, you know, time and distance. Oh, yeah. Uh, but uh, the silence thing works every so often. Most days, though, I have a, a podcast or two on. So I guess I need to subscribe to yours. <laughs> yeah, right on that. Hey, Greg, let me ask you, when you're running, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I grew up playing sports. Did you grow up running as a runner or did you play other sports or how did you find running? Uh, I played a lot of, well, if you go way back to when I was a kid, I played ice hockey. I'm from upstate New York, central New York area, then played baseball and basketball uh, at the college level. Uh, I ran a little bit, but never from a dedication standpoint. I actually finished my first marathon the morning after my wife and I were married in 1988. Uh, which, yeah, that usually provokes a reaction. We're still married. In fact, we're, we're staring down our 34th anniversary in a couple of weeks. Yeah. yeah. Um, I hadn't run one for a while and, and I wanted to run at least one more and once I, the, the second one I ran was in San Diego, um, rock and roll marathon out there. And then I just kind of stayed after it for about five years. Have you done Boston? Yes, three times. Oh, geez. SEC football, uh, the, the motto of the conference, it just means more. Help, help the Pac-12 fans understand, the Pac-12 fans who have been on the West Coast for all their lives, understand what SEC football and, and that environment and what it's about. Well, we're recording this um, on a weekend when Alabama plays at Tennessee. I would guess there'll be 105 or so thousand people in the stadium, and I would project as many outside the stadium just to be part of the atmosphere. So that's a bit of the external, the the passion, the interest. Somebody just sent me a, a photograph that's on social media of a family member who painted 
an orange and white checkerboard on their father's grave because he was a Tennessee fan. So that was the it just means more moment of our Friday morning. Um, you know, on the field, I think the, the speed uh, and the athleticism and the size combination is a distinction. Uh, the football experts tell me uh, the line of scrimmage of effort, strength, uh, athleticism from just some, some large young men um, as a difference maker. But as you look like in the defensive backfields, uh, we'll sit and watch video as part of our officiating review. And, and I'll have football people in the room with me just explaining that the, the ability for a defender to recover um, because of their speed and athleticism is unique in this league. Uh, and, and we'll explain, you know, technically here's something that will happen at the NFL level, but doesn't happen collegiately. Um, and that's, you know, that's a little bit abstract. And that puts me back to, you know, television ratings, uh, success, expectation, support, uh, fan commitment, uh, which from time to time can, can go a bit overboard. I think all of that combines to, to set us apart in the arena of college football. Like it seems like that has become the SEC's advantage in the, those regards has become more pronounced in the last 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, do you remember it being that uh, that big of a distinction, you know, when you started working in the, in the Southland or when you joined the SEC? Yeah, so my my work anniversary here is in two weeks. Oh, wow. Um, and, and 20 years prior, uh, I had never been to a football game on an SEC campus, yet I was drawn in. And I remember a particular weekend, um, it was this, it was two weeks before what's known as kick six in the Iron Bowl, uh, the return by Auburn to win the game, when they had this tip pass in the Georgia game called the Miracle of Jordan Hare. Um, and I had driven home from a football game at Vanderbilt that was played early that day, and I, I drove in made it home for the last two minutes and the last two minutes of that game, just uh, drama filled. And I looked at my wife and I said, you know, you can, you can comment however you want. I was not the commissioner at the time. Uh, I said, you can comment uh, on the, on the outskirts or from the periphery of the SEC, however you want, but you can't argue that this is compelling. Um, and I think week to week, uh, the reality of what plays out on the football field is highly compelling. And you look at the coaches we have, uh, I'm, I'm, I'll be at a game in Oxford, Mississippi this weekend. I've not seen Lane and his team play in the same state. You have Mike Leach. You guys have a level of familiarity with both. Brian Kelly's move uh, to, to, uh, to, to LSU, you know, Jimbo, Nick, Kirby. I uh, saw Shane Beamer last week and just his family lineage. And you go on and on through the league. Um and that's an indication to support the expectations, the pressures that exist. Uh, but it's pretty special. The, I'm interested in the ecosystem of college athletics. And, you know, in business, I don't think, you know, McDonald's cares if Burger King survives or not. But in the college football world or in the college athletics world, you know, I, I think the, eco, the health of the ecosystem should be important to, to all conferences. It, why, why is that important, or is that important as you view the SEC and your mission within the conference, but when you look at the broader picture across the country? Uh, obviously, we want to be uh, successful in, in every sport we sponsor, um, and, and that's about us. But 
you also have to have uh, colleagues involved in that nationally competitive effort. And I've referenced uh, repeatedly that we don't need expansion of the college football playoff as an example. We, we don't. Uh, even with the move to 16 teams, if the college football playoff stayed at four, we'd be fine. Uh, given what's happened since it was implemented uh, through today, uh, uh, we can stay at four with the New Year's Six model. Uh, that is not the perspective offered by everyone else over time. Um, and, and I think one of the motivating factors from our perspective is the need for football to be relevant on a national basis. That's important for us all. It's about opportunities at, at the high school level. It's about uh, a college-going culture, if you will, around uh, high school programs seeking to provide opportunities for young people to continue to grow, to, to transition from adolescence to adulthood on a college campus. Um, and we've not had, you know, a, a national perspective in the college football playoff for a period of time, or you could argue uh, over the last eight years, it's it's been minimized. And, and so I, I look at it, and I think we've been able to have conversations with some disagreement in our conference, but have coalesced around the recognition that we need national competition. And there are a lot of layers to that conversation, but that's, uh, I hope, a representative answer uh, about the need uh, for more than than just the Southeastern Conference, for example. Was that a big push, a big part of the push for you all to kind of restart the expansion discussion here of the playoff? That restart did not come from us. You know, I left um, the January meetings in Indianapolis, and I was very open with my colleagues to say, you know, we're stopping and we're going to put this aside and we'll come back for the 26th season. And, and before we, we walked away, uh, I was intentional about making that statement. Um, and obviously things changed over the summer. Uh, people have asked me, well, what happened? I said, well, my perspective's never really changed. Um, so you, you can't, I can't answer why others decided to change. I can guess, project, surmise. Uh, they have to speak to why their, their perspectives change. Um, I think part of the challenge right now is rather than have used the past 12 months or really 16 months to improve upon a, a recommendation, that recommendation was static. And now we're in, in a hurry up offense, if you will. Uh, trying to move to uh, a finish line around the ability to implement a 12-team format earlier than the 26th season. What do you think that's done to the expansion, realignment, uh, you know, all the chaos that we saw with UCLA, USC uh, this summer? What do you think it's done to the landscape? The the, the presidents and chancellors sort of saying, look, uh, we're going to expand this playoff. Is there been a byproduct that you see out there? Wow, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I've had people tell me uh, from other conferences that this expansion can be a stabilizing factor for their, their organization. Uh, whether that's true or not, I'm, I'm not exactly certain. Uh, but if it is, um, and, and again, others have spoken to that, uh, then that is one of the, the, the side benefits from expansion. Now, I also know a lot about conference membership transition over the last three or four decades, having been in the room or, or right beside the room where things were happening. And 
Uh, I don't know that one particular change like a college football playoff provides assurance that there won't be future movement. So I'm, I'm a little bit cautious about that piece, but recognize what others have said to me about the expansion of the, the college football playoff. Were you surprised with the USC-UCLA move, given the geography, or is is this just, uh, you know, the, the cost of doing business in today's college athletics world, you know, geography aside? Yeah, yes and no. Um, yes and no. I had, uh, I, I go back to 2015 when I first started as the commissioner of the Southeastern Conference, and in my first president's meeting, I was kind of uh, identifying, you know, TV markets, transitions, around media uh and, and i just made some statements about when when graniff rights reach their expiration date uh the likelihood of conference membership transition is real and we have to begin thinking about that reality from the southeastern conference perspective and uh you saw movement uh involving us in in 2021 um and and had i thought about west coast movement um, absolutely. Had I thought about it in the context of the Southeastern Conference? No. Uh, so, but the fact that happened uh, as it did when it did, yeah, I, I did not know that one was coming. In fact, it was right before July 4th weekend. And after the last few years of our own expansion and COVID the year before, I went to a place beside a lake thinking I wouldn't have to look at my phone for five days and I could just read books. <laughs> obviously failed at it. And predicting that reality, so it it, it it occupied the entirety of my July trying to understand what was happening. But I mean, there's a yes and no embedded in my observation. July used to be the best time to take a vacation if you were involved in college athletics, and and the last couple of summers it's been the worst. I'm I'm going to take my vacation in November because that's quieter than July. Unfortunately, that's not an option for conference commissioners. No, that's true. <laughs> I, I feel that. I mean, last year, just for Christmas, I thought we'd have two days. And then we had changing COVID realities. We had a CDC policy change. We had other conferences that had become less restrictive with their policies than, than we were as we headed into the postseason. We had cancellations. So even the other time, you can usually catch your breath, even though there are bowl games, is right around the Christmas holiday and, and that didn't happen. So I've my hope that we'll have a quiet Christmas season this year is is dwindling just because I've lived what I've lived for the last three or four years. Oh, yeah, sure. Greg, your tenure at the SEC as commissioner kind of coincides with the trajectory of the Pac-12 and, and football on the West Coast. Uh, deteriorating, right? Oregon made the championship game in 2014. Washington made the playoff in 2016. And since then, it's it's kind of it's slid into oblivion in some regards. And I know you don't want to get involved in another conference's politics, but do you see any broader forces uh, or dynamics that you think have affected college football and the relevancy of the Pac-12? I don't, I don't spend a lot of time evaluating um, others and their performance. I think you could, you could understand that. I obviously am an observer and I pay attention. And so I, I take a step back from um, the, the regional aspect and, and have an interest in looking like big picture at, at college football. So 
Uh, I'll offer a few thoughts that are not region specific, but I think demand our attention and have driven some of our decision-making uh, probably in a different way than some of our colleague conferences. You know, I grew up outside Syracuse, New York, and I think, can think of two communities near where I grew up that all of my time in, in junior high, high school, college, and even young adulthood, uh, these two high schools had really outstanding football programs. Well, now they function as one program combined. Um, I don't think that's unique up there. And I watch, um, I watch colleges and universities playing on Friday night when we traditionally have experienced high school football. And you know what? I think that's a small but subtle impact about how we support the game broadly. Um, communicating about the ability to play and be healthy playing. Uh, we have to become more effective at that across the spectrum of football, high school, college, and the NFL. Um, we have to make clear that there are opportunities to participate in college football beyond just the highest of the high levels. And it's not just about accessing the NFL. I had an athletics director um, visit from a person from another conference who said, I only went to college because of the opportunity from sports. But I think we've we've really shifted to, you know, everybody's going to be an NFL prospect or an NBA prospect. Um, and then the effort to communicate, you know, regional importance for us is intentional. Um, and again, this is not about the West Coast, but uh, there's some, I think, inherent advantages of communities that rally around those Friday night opportunities uh, the ability to, to touch and feel a college program from those in their communities who are part of something, you know, bigger than themselves when they go off to a university and, and participate in the Southeastern Conference. And we try to communicate about that. I don't know that I've diagnosed the why. Um, I, I, I look, too, at, at stability and leadership. And we've had uh, challenges at the president and athletic director level. We've had what over our history by comparison in the last seven or eight years is significant um, transition among leadership on campus. Yet, uh, I think one of my roles is to constantly reinforce a culture, um, a vision, and really a thought that we want this conference to be something special, um, that football supports what we do broadly, but everything else we do is we think about baseball scheduling and basketball scheduling and rivalries and softball, the ability for Auburn and Alabama to have those competitive experiences in baseball and softball, I think reinforces what we do in a big picture way. And there's an attachment to our vision for how we function that, that, that obviously um, focuses on football, but focuses broadly on, on uh, all elements of how we, we make decisions and how we function. The, the thing I hear mo most often about the SEC, Greg, is that it is the most aligned conference with the president's athletic directors and conference office. Everybody is, if not on exactly the same page, very close. And that's not the case, I think, in some of the other conferences. How did – is that because football is the rallying point, the focal point for every school, or is there another dynamic that you think has – allowed you all to be so aligned? I think there are a set of realities that support alignment, and I need to be transparent. We have disagreement all the time. Uh, we, we are going to have to decide our football schedule. It's been a really healthy conversation since expansion. 
Um, you can go read reports about tension and different views around our expansion from 14 to 16. Uh, yet there was a, a line given to my predecessor in his first meeting when Mike Slive was here. Uh, our athletics directors discussed a policy issue and the vote was seven to five. And as Mike shared with me, I was not at that particular meeting, probably the last one I did not attend. He was like, oh, when I ran Conference USA, a, a vote like that meant that you'd, it would be on the next meeting agenda and the meeting agenda after that, and you'd never, never resolve the issue. And Doug Dickey was the athletic director at Tennessee back then, and he, he came up to commissioner. He said, Mike, what's on your mind? He said, well, we're going to revisit this, and it's just going to never go away. He said, commissioner. Let me tell you something. In the SEC, 7-5 is 12-0 when we leave the room. <laughs> and we actually, I reinforced that. You know, it's new math right now. So 8-6 is 14-0. Uh, people have feelings. You can see those expressed over time. Yet we've been able to reinforce the type of culture around our decision-making that says, you know what, you turn the page and you move on. And rather than complain and, and uh try to to change the policy you go on and figure out how you can function uh in a manner that defines excellence meeting the expectations we have big 10 cuts uh, a record deal uh, everybody sees the dollar figures out there and of course uh, i look immediately to the sec and i go gosh did they leave money on the table uh, or is that just the emerging market the changing of, of the market how do you view that in you know, was was there a reason maybe you don't put the pedal to the metal? Uh, are there some things that as a conference you need that you wouldn't, I guess you wouldn't sell to a TV network? Well, there are realities. We've made decisions not to do some things that others have done. You know, we don't have title sponsors right now for our championship events. That's That's a conscious decision that leaves money on the table. But fundamentally for media rights, our current agreements date back to 2008, which in some ways, from a media perspective, is a century ago. You know, it's like Alexander Graham Bell era in a decade. <laughs> um, and so there were decisions made that impact our decision making right now. And, and you have to credit uh, Jim Delaney and the Big Ten for their, their shorter term decision making. Yet I'm really uh, proud of how we've maximized our opportunities and will continue to, to build. So keep in mind when we went, we went early, um, set of reasons for that. Um, and we went early, we had about 15 football games to sell and a handful of men's basketball games. Well, I'm quite confident we maximized our, our revenue opportunity. But when you look more deeply, people can argue you need multiple TV networks. Obviously the Big Ten did that and they had their reasons. Uh, we've transitioned everything to Disney after our experience with CBS and and what you have through Disney is the modern reality. It is not about digital and digital alone. It is not about broadcast TV and broadcast alone. It is not about satellite and cable. It is about all three. I mean, that is the ecosystem uh, of the media enterprise right now. And the sophistication of what Disney has done with each of those elements, broadcast TV. So when we migrate from CBS to the Disney family, uh, we'll have more broadcast TV opportunities, which now encompasses 130 million households. That was really important to us from access. Uh, we'll maintain a cable presence with ESPN and the SEC network. That's important to us. Uh, but we'll also continue to explore uh, digital through ESPN Plus. And last year, 
was the first time we had a digital uh, presence on ESPN Plus, and we saw consumption numbers that were second to none in the college realm. Now that doesn't involve some of the new providers, but uh, we're, 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 we're confident in our decision-making. Um, we have a clear vision for our future. We're gonna continue to find ways to build upon what we've done from the media standpoint, but also from the revenue standpoint. So Greg, what do you see in the future here? What, what is college football, the structure of college football look like in 2030, 2035 even? I mean, do you, will it be recognizable? I think so. I, I start with the game itself, and, and I'm going to answer that question. In, in 2014, 2015, uh, I went through the search process. I hired a search firm, and I was, I don't know, 30 yards down the hall from where I reside in an office right now. Uh, but I had to go through the thought process of, What's the vision for the future? And that's really your, what you're asking me. What's the vision for the future? And, and our presidents asked me for a one-year, a three-year, and a 10-year vision. And I could explain one year and three-year. And, and I batted, you know, if we want to take batting average nomenclature, I batted about 700 over those three years on what I saw needed to be done and what we did. And then, you know, you add things and you, you walk away from things. But the 10-year vision... Uh, was really a challenge. Uh, I, I have gone back regularly, and the very first bullet point was that we want to function at such a high level and with, of sustained success and excellence that people come to ask, come to us and ask, "How do we achieve that?" You know, your question about alignment is a good example, and and I define those who I wanted to come ask as colleagues from other conferences, uh, people who are in the media. Uh, I, I expanded it to, to business writers, you know, the, the vision that you'd connect beyond just the sports page to what's happening from a leadership and decision making. But I also commented that we'd have um, campuses, athletics departments and universities asking, wow, how do you how do you achieve that? And that's effectively what happened with Oklahoma and Texas. They said to me, uh, we've seen how you function as a league how you've competed, how you've made decisions, and, and to me, how you've led, and we want to be a part of that. Never focused on revenue, just that culture, which in part, I think, answers a piece of your question. So play that forward. It's difficult to say it's going to be this, 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 and this. And you have to be comfortable with uncertainty uh, because we've been dealing with uncertainty every day of our lives. We just get to deny it. And then you have things like pandemics or conference movement or media agreements and all of a sudden the uncertainty is clear right it's like wow i didn't think it would be that way so you look forward and say i think the game itself will function much as it does now i think there are opportunities for change i'm one who's looked and we've done some research on clock stoppages after incomplete passes or different parts of the game and how do you adjust so you you continue to function within the, the structure of football at the collegiate level, but you also move the games along. You improve the pace of play. Um, so I think those types of things can change. Um, our athletic departments are centered in our universities, and, and I'm fully committed to the expectation that academics are at the heart of what we do, noting that you have a century plus of tension if you go back and read history. Uh, of college athletics, college football, you have tension between academic achievement um, and athletic expectations and demands. 
And I think at this point, we're managing those better than we ever have in college sports, not perfectly, but better than we ever have seen by um, pr progress on the graduation rates. Now, now what's going to happen around um, transfers and how team rosters are constructed? Uh, what's going to happen around the support of programs and the support of young people, student athletes in those programs? Uh, that's the work we're doing now, the, the onset of name, image, and likeness, which is not uh, well thought out, nor was it orderly. Um, that, in my view, has to change, not to take things away, but to support healthy national competition, which I described earlier as we think about football and the playoff. Um, can we can we adjust? Congress is interested. Is it committed? Uh, how else will states engage in telling us how to manage athletic programs? So we saw California with an NIL bill that as originally adopted still wouldn't be in effect if you keep in mind the date right. of 2023. And then Florida, and our warning to uh, national leadership was as soon as our states engage, it will become a competitive endeavor. You know, one of the questions to answer is will state legislatures continue along that pathway? And if so, how do we adjust? So that's more of a vision. That's an understanding of what's out there. Um, I, I think we're well positioned in this league, as I tell people, look, in this time of change and uncertainty, there's no place I'd rather be than in the Southeastern Conference. And, and I continually reinforce that because I think our best days are ahead, but we're going to have to be continually thinking and adapting to realities around us. The NCAA tournament, uh, there's, there's been some talk about minimum standards for automatic bids. Where, where, do, where do you stand on that? Yeah, you want to know. So you guys like can appreciate when people have done this in your career. So I was in an interview with Pat Forty. I just left two sets of meetings where everybody was concerned about things being taken away. So Pat was interviewing me and I said, look, I don't want to make a headline here. And whenever you say that in my position, you should just stop yourself. <laughs> right? Isn't that's like journalism 101. But I went ahead and said, rather than wor everybody worrying about things being taken away, like access through automatic bids why don't we think about growing the event um and that became a headline and it's interesting now to watch my colleagues jump in um with their commentary um and then uh, i think jim phillips at the acc in fact i know he said it in his media days and what's interesting is to see uh opinion writers and you guys do this and and i'm not indicting the whole uh, enterprise but simply say you can't do that you ruin everything I mean, that's really not a very thoughtful response. So I'm not demanding that we look at expansion, but as we're trying to balance division one, which continues to grow um, and has not been well managed from an entry point, despite the fact we've tried over time, and as people have expectations for access, and when you look at college baseball, Ole Miss is identified as the last team in the college baseball tournament this past year, and they won the national championship, which was a cool moment. Um, North Carolina State is generally seen as the first team out. So if the last team in can achieve what Old Miss achieved, what about the last team that's left out? And people are mad at the selection committee, and maybe it is the structure that we have to look at. In basketball for us, it was Texas A&M, but Dayton was in that circumstance this year. And conversely, you've seen first first four teams play in Dayton and move to the final four, you know, UCLA in, in the bubble year, for example, or Virginia Commonwealth, or you've seen Syracuse, I think did it moved into the sweet 16. So those competitive 
points of differentiation among like 30 to 50 in the net are really pretty small. And, and we just have to continue thinking forward about access and how can you grow in a healthy way to turn. And, and it, I, I think it fundamentally is about competition. Um, and so I, I haven't even considered or projected, well, there's going to be a ton more revenue. You know, it's about looking at a team that's the last team in that wins a national championship and asking what's the right spectrum of those from a competitive standpoint that deserve access because, you know, they might have an opportunity in, in basketball or in some other sports to, to excel in the postseason. John, go ahead. Yeah. I, I, and on that, Oregon State did the same thing in baseball. They were the last team in one yeah. year and they won the national championship. And But how big is, uh, like, I guess you haven't really thought about, how big is too big when it comes to a tournament? What At what point do you start to dilute the postseason as some sports, some professional sports have done? We've... Um... We've been engaged in that conversation. So, uh, by the way, thank you for bringing up Oregon State because I still am pained by the the Arkansas championship series. Um, <laughs> that, that just yeah. turned. It, I mean, you know, if you want, I think it's okay to say this. Um, I was sitting next to Larry, and the ball's in the air, and it's going to be caught. And he said to me, he turned and said, congratulations in that moment, which I would have done the same thing. And then everything turned. So it still hurts to think about that. But um in the playoff people will say well if you go if you expand you're going to hurt the regular season my view is the 14 playoff has impacted the regular season when teams are are out of it at this point in the season and their fan base views it that way i don't think that's healthy so we have to understand that any postseason impacts the regular season um when you think back to my description of the competitive realities present in college, because we don't have the same sort of formats or scheduling uh, or even the small number of franchises that the professional sports have, I think we can move. I don't think 68 um, negated or negatively impacted the regular season as it exists now. But keep in mind the fact that the NCAA tournament exists has shifted weight in basketball away from December um, to that postseason. So that exists. And, and trying to kind of hold on to something that may be more imaginary um, shouldn't be the driver of our thinking. On the other hand, I know in our league, winning a conference champion uh, means a great deal. And we reinforce that. And we talk to our campuses about the importance of conference championships. We set expectations here uh, about meeting the SEC standard of excellence around our student athletes participation in conference championships. And so I, I think all of that's a combination and and I could say John and you won't know which one I'm referring to, but John, you referred at the beginning of this conversation to the college sports ecosystem. I think all of that's part of the ecosystem. And simply to say, well, if you added 12 more teams to the NCAA basketball tournament, that that, that would destroy the regular season. I think that ignores uh, ignores a bigger picture that the regular season is always impacted by the postseason. Greg, uh, final question, you know. If we go back to Cayuga Community College or Letourneau College early in your academic career, you know, you you probably would have wanted to know what you know now. But give us a piece of advice that you got along your journey that you're just so glad that you came into uh, contact with. Oh, there's a there's a lot. Um, and I'll try to be, be efficient with my words. You know, one was I was a freshman in Longview, Texas, Letourneau College backup catcher, which was just fun. I mean, for all the 
focused on national championships and professional this, professional that, to sit out at a college baseball game um, and have sunflower seed spinning contests and warm up a pitcher and freeze on the cold days and sweat on the hot days and be a part of the team was something really special. But there was a day where I was sure I was going to play. I, I played against this opponent. I had my first hit. It was a double down the right field line. We had won. I knew when we played them in a doubleheader because I was a, I was a freshman, right? Your mind doesn't exactly think logically. I was going to play. And I didn't. And instead of being the contributor from an energy standpoint, um, uh, a congratulatory standpoint of helping teammates stay focused, I just shut down. And my coach noticed it. So the next day, there's a knock on the door of my my, my dorm, and uh, it was just me in the dorm room. My 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 roommate had transferred after the fall semester. And the door opens. He says, hey, Sank, can we talk? And I was stunned that he was there. And the, the only right answer to your head coach is yes. And so I asked him if he wanted to come in. We went into a lounge. And I can I can picture that moment where he said, basically, if we'd have lost that game yesterday, I would have blamed it on you. It would have been your responsibility. And I'm a freshman backup catcher. And, and I don't understand the frame of reference. I'm leaning back on my chair like shocked, saying, you know, like, coach, how can that be? And he says, you have no idea uh, how important your role is on this team. And, and I've used that story because I think that changed my thinking and my direction a bit, where the, the interaction of academics and sport and the competitive environment uh, helped me grow up that weekend. And the ability to understand my role as a leader, I may not be the team captain, I may not be a starter, but I can have an impact. And that reality has played out throughout my career. Um, I, I, if you walk in our back door, there are two signs. One's from a book called Legacy about the New Zealand All, All Blacks. It, say, it says champions do extra, not champions do more. Champions do extra. And, and I've done that my entire career. I've never said no to an opportunity, even if I didn't get paid for it. And even if it was menial, um, the right answer is yes. The second sign was from a leadership summit that I heard President Clinton speak at. And I've never seen this quote attributed to him, but I wrote it down 20 plus years ago. And that is that problems yield to effort. And when we gather as a staff, we, we talk about those mantras. Um, when you ask me, like, how have I functioned um, throughout my career, never expecting to be in this role? My wedding anniversary is November 5th, which is this year when Georgia and Tennessee play and when LSU, Alabama play. And so there was no vision that I would be here. And my wife always delays um, our wedding anniversary dinner around college football then. Um, but those, those thoughts, those contributions from that baseball coach, my first week at Utica College, my boss said, when are you going to start grad school? Because I could go to Syracuse for free unremitted tuition. I said, you know, I've been in college for five years. I just want to take a year off and like read the books I want to read. And he gave me this great advice. He said, look, if you don't start now, you never will. And so I went back, I enrolled, I started my graduate program to pursue my master's. In two years, I was finished. I moved. Um, and I look back and like, if I had taken that year, I thought I needed and not listened to his advice. Uh, I think I have achieved something, but the opportunities would have been very different. Um, and you know, I, when I'm at Northwestern state, my boss says, look, 
when I when I took a new job as commissioner of the Southland Conference, my boss, who I was an intern for, the AD, said, you're going to get one chance to change things and get it right. So get it right. And, and those are the moments uh, to answer your question with a really long answer that I could go on because it's a 30 plus year career now uh, about how people built into me, said the right thing at the right time. I was smart enough to listen to it. Uh, sometimes I had to pay to, to be there. And, you know, nobody was giving me a free ride uh, to observe things. And I'll finish with this. Since we're on the West Coast, Judy Sweet was the first female NCA president back when a member uh, representative was the NCA president. And I heard her speak in the late nine, or excuse me, the early 90s. And, and I told her this when I finally had the chance to meet and visit with her. She spoke and talked about ascending to that NCA presidency. And she said, uh, I was able to be in these rooms of people that were just above me. And she said, I sat, I listened, and I learned. And, and that's what happened to me. I ended up in rooms where I probably shouldn't have been when I was in my mid and late 20s with leaders. Same thing happened in my 30s. The same thing happens here all the time and every time, regardless of my title, regardless of my conference. I've sat, I've listened, and I've learned. And that's made an enormous difference in my life. Fantastic advice for, I mean, for anybody, right? <clears throat> Absolutely. Sports, sports writers could use use some of that. That's for sure. Well, uh, you guys, you, you guys have the same experience I have. You have this interaction with people who most of America sees like five inches tall on a TV screen, depending on the size of your TV screen. And you get to watch how they function, how they lead, how they interact, how they deal with disappointment, sometimes not well, how they deal with success, sometimes not well. And you can learn a lot from those experiences. I'm sorry to jump in. No, you're absolutely right. That absolutely. People people ask me, what's the best part of the job? I'm like, the people. Because you see those things and you learn from them, even now in my late 50s. And then they ask me, like, what's the worst part of your job? And I'm like, yeah, the people. <laughs> the two-sided coin. Greg Sankey, thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank you for doing this. Can't yeah, thank you enough, Greg. Thank you. I hope it's helpful. Wilner. What's what's your big takeaway? Uh, you know, you turn, you run into a friend. What's the first thing you're telling him about this interview? You know, he's so good at connecting every all the dots, right? And I mean, his his explanation of the influences on his life at the end there, it just it connects all the dots. Talking about the, you know what makes the SEC great and talking about the future of the sport connects all the dots. It's the it's the product, but it's also the mission. It's your personal experience. Uh, it's it's listening and learning. You know, uh, I just I think the guy's fascinating to listen to uh, on a level that is not always the case with with you know commissioners or or head coaches or athletic directors. And I that's probably a big part of why he's been so successful. Yeah, and I think too. Look, this is a guy. He he mentioned his low-level experience playing college baseball. And then, you know, he worked as the director of intramural sports in one of his first jobs. And he's been in a lot of different college campuses, including, you know, he's been in conference offices too, including the Southland Conference, where he was there, uh, ultimately became commissioner, but he was in compliance to start with. So I think he's he's kind of like the undercover boss who has been at all levels of college yeah. athletics. And so I think it's really, and as he was talking, and I hadn't considered this before, I kind of wondered if, you know, what we what what college athletics really needs is it needs the NCAA to get its teeth back. And I kind of wondered if a guy like Greg Sankey or maybe Greg Sankey could end up as head of the NCAA one day and what that would mean for college athletics to have somebody who has 
been inside major conferences and can glue this thing back together because that's really what needs to happen. And then the other takeaway was simply, you know, he's talking about having access to people, listening and learning. Um, You know, the, the purpose of this podcast was we wanted to bring people to places they couldn't get. And so I think the people who have now listened to Greg Sankey throughout this podcast have listened and learned a little bit because as he was talking, I was going, you know what? I should do that too. Like the run he's taking, how um, just the peace of mind and the meditation and of course exercise is good for you and all that stuff. But I, I think a guy who's in a high stress position like he is or a person who's in that position benefits from that run that he was taking every day. And you know, the signs on the wall, I was like, yeah, I should have that sign on my wall too. Like, there's just a lot of listening and learning, and, you know, I'm sure the audience uh, got some stuff out of that, too. Yeah, I mean, just think about how quickly he snuffed out that Saban-Jimbo Fisher brouhaha that happened, right? And could any other conference commissioner have tamped that down as effectively as he did? And what does that say about the you know, his leadership style, right? His management style. Clearly he's got the respect of everybody in the SEC. And, you know, that, that was a perfect example of it, right? I just don't, that, that thing could have exploded on the conference and instead it was over and done with. Make sure you share this podcast interview with friends and family and colleagues who would benefit from it. Uh, Make sure you're subscribed as well. Leave us some feedback. Give us a rating if you're listening uh, via Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating. That helps other people find the podcast. We appreciate that you're here for it uh, for another episode of the Konzano and Wilner Podcast.